All right, the rest of us, we get to start a new series today. We're going to be in a series that is called Filled, Complete, and Whole. And it is a follow-up to the series we've been in. If this is your first Sunday, this, is, this will stand alone. You, you don't need to feel like you're missing something. But we just went through four weeks of training in the Word. And so this follow-up is a kind of a practical workshop kind of a follow-up that if you accept the challenge that I'll give later on, it'll just I'll come alongside you as we're working through the little letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians. And... Uh, You'll begin to get into the Word and train in the Word, and I'll help support you in that. Now, human beings are really interesting beings. We, uh, we are designed to function when we are filled, and when we are complete, and when we are whole. And we all desire it. We long to, to be whole and complete and filled, and yet... We all struggle there. And as we struggle there, odd beings that we are, we will fill ourselves with almost anything that we think at the moment will give us a little bit of satisfaction, even if it's just short-term satisfaction, whatever it is, according to what we yearn for, we start filling ourselves up with wrong stuff, wrong choices, wrong things. And with each of those choices, it begs for more, and we start wanting more of the same thing, even though it's so short-lived, and it starts to tear us apart. We don't see it coming, and it starts to get worse. And this whole series is about how to experience a true filling, a true completeness and a wholeness that comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we, we want to jump into what the Bible says about that, we want to compare it with our own experience and hopefully be motivated to literally train to get to that place where we are so satisfied with God that some of the attractiveness of every other diversion becomes less attractive and we just want what is best for us and that's what this series will help us get to. Now, what I'd like to do is share the series theme verse first, so we kind of see that this idea comes right out of this little letter that Paul wrote to the people in Colossae, uh, that's why we call it Colossians, they were called Colossians, okay, so this little letter, here's the theme verse, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, I guess that's theme verses, <laughs> for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. And we're going to see this theme woven throughout this little letter, and we'll keep coming to those themes as we go. So if you want to be filled, if you want to be complete, and if you want to be whole, then what you need to do is go to Jesus. We have all kinds of go-tos. I do too. When I feel kind of empty, feel kind of broken, feel kind of whatever, I have a lot of go-tos that will give me a little, oh, short-lived feeling of, oh, you know, snacks. <laughs> and it just is not going to do it. And we need to have that fullness and completeness. So today's theme verse, not the whole series theme verse, but today's theme verse 
is in verse 13 of chapter 1. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And so that's why the title today is Filled Complete Whole because Jesus rescued me. Now, before we jump into the text, I mean, I've already showed you kind of the, the notice text for today, if you were this in the last series, and then we're going to jump into kind of translating that text to understand it. Before we do, we're supposed to get oriented. So I want to orient you a little bit to this little letter. Now, let me orient you to the Bible as a whole. The bulk of the Bible is what we call the Old Testament. It's, it's a big bulk, okay? This much is Old Testament. This much is New Testament. The Old Testament is all preparatory, but it tells the story of our problem. And it, it gives us a preliminary answer that hints at a permanent answer all through from the beginning up to the turning of the page where we get into the New Testament. So it starts at the beginning with Adam and Eve. Uh, they were created whole, complete, and uh, filled in a connection that's designed by God to function well with him. Then God sets up a scenario where they need to choose him, and they're tempted to not choose him, and they choose their own way to be filled, complete and whole, and everything goes south from there. And as it goes south, the story continues, and humankind gets worse and worse and worse fast, and then God sets up a redemption plan, and he chooses another pair, uh, Abraham and Sarah, they're, they're called Abram and Sarai until their names are changed to Abraham and Sarah. And he's going to set up a, this promise through them that he's going to eventually bring a person that blesses the whole world, but it's, out of them it's going to be a nation of blessing to the world, and out of that nation it's going to be a person of blessing to the whole world so that we could be filled whole and complete. The story keeps rolling forward into their kingdom, into the King David, who is a kind of a precursor to this king that rules under God, but even he falls short, and all the kings fall short, and then the prophets tell about the coming one, and the Old Testament comes to a close where he hasn't come yet. We turn the page, and we get to the New Testament where he has come. He's identified as Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you kind of get this as you read through the four Gospels. All four Gospels tell of his life, tell of his teachings, tell of what he's done. They all culminate with his death his burial, and his resurrection. Jesus explains in advance that he came to die. Uh, John the Baptist also explains that his death is going to have meaning for us. And then he's raised from the dead. And then we turn the page. And then we get into what happened afterwards. And so Acts is a whole story about how this movement of followers of Jesus called at first the way because Jesus himself was the way to this life, this, the way to be whole and complete and, and, and functioning the way God designed us to, exploded across the map, all over the Roman Empire, which was most of the uh, civilized world. And we kind of tread through the pages of Acts, telling us about all those Acts of the Apostles, Acts of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, a key character, is left in chains in a Roman imprisonment, chained to a guard, and we're left hanging at the end of the book of Acts, right there, and the date for that is approximately A.D. 62. Right there is where Paul writes the letter to the Colossians. Now, let's just set that stage for a moment. So, Jesus was crucified 
around AD 30. So 32 years later, now by the way, I'll have been the pastor of this church in January 31 years. I don't think 32 years is a long time. It goes by so fast, and so you get to kind of look back and see these events taking place. Well, in those 32 years, this movement exploded across the map. All kinds of things were happening. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, where their lives were transformed, they were whole, they were complete, they were filled, and they were just talking about this gospel, which is the good news. It's just spreading like wildfire, so much so that the government feels like the whole civilization is turned upside down, and they want to stomp out Christianity, and that's part of the issue with Paul being in prison, okay? So that's where we are when he pens the letter. So on the one hand, well, it's a bummer deal to be chained up and not know whether you're going to survive or not. But I'm glad that God allowed it because we would be missing so much if Paul didn't slow down enough to have to write. Now, I want to orient us a little bit more. There's some key characters we'll run into when we go into this little letter. It's like four pages long, people, friends, <laughs> I want us, I want us literally to come out of this training in the word series and start training. I want all of us to immerse ourselves in the word, which is where I was last week. Immerse ourselves so much in the word that it starts affecting the way we think about everything. And I want us to be in this little letter to experiment with that if we've never done that before. And I'm going to come alongside you every seven days or so, but I want you to be in the little letter of Colossians every day of the week. And every seven days or so for seven weeks, let's immerse ourselves there. And we're going to discover something that this is amazing if you literally do what we talked about in the last series, take it in process it, and live it out, you're going to see this transformation already start to take place in how you think about things uh, take place. So, some key characters. When he opens the letter, we're going to discover that he says, uh, Paul and Timothy wrote this thing. But then he continues to talk, I, 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 a lot of times. When he talks about them praying together, he says, we. Um, but Paul is the writer. He's an apostle which means commissioned by Jesus Christ to teach and represent everything that Jesus taught. And so in a sense, the way we look at it is, Paul's the writer, God is authoring it through Paul, but even then, Paul is saying, and Timothy is writing this. How is that? Timothy served as an amanuensis. If you like coming away with some, you know, big words, write that one down. That just simply means a scribal secretary. He was his protege, and Paul is in chains, and so Paul dictates, and Timothy writes. And so we have Paul's letter written by Timothy, who uh, then this is dealing with an issue. There's another key character you run into, and he has an interesting name, Epaphras. Epaphras started a church in Colossae. Paul is writing to that church, but he's never been there. This is an unusual setting because so many churches were started by Paul, but this particular church was started by Epaphras. And so what took place is, while Paul was ministering for three years in Ephesus, which is about 100, 120 miles from uh, Colossae, which is in modern Turkey, that area, and Ephesus is on the coast, Epaphras heard about the good news and it spent time with Paul, comes away with the full teaching of Paul, so excited about what Jesus has done, he starts telling people, and these people all become believers, and then he's got a church. 
And Epaphras starts to shepherd this church and pastor this church and teach this church what Paul has taught him. Epaphras hears about Paul's imprisonment, goes to Rome, ministers to Paul, and then in the process is talking to Paul about his church that he started. Paul is so excited. And he tells us about his excitement as we read. And he then prays for the Colossian church, but he also heard from Epaphras about some problems that snuck into the church. And some of the problems that came in was some bad teaching. Some of the bad teaching came from a Gentile sector, a pagan sector. And some of the bad teaching came from a Jewish sector. And both of which are kind of pulling people away from the original good news that we are saved by grace through uh, faith in Jesus Christ. So that kind of sets us up. Are we oriented? All right, let's jump into the letter. Starting at verse 1, Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. All right, now, we're going to be studying only verses 1 through 14 today. I'm going to skip chunks as we go. I, if I leave myself enough time, I'm going to take a large chunk where he says, this is what I'm praying for you, and we're literally going to finish with that prayer, okay? But we're not going to read it word for word because says, this is what I'm praying for you, this is what I'm praying for you. We're going to change the pronouns so that we're praying it for us, Okay? But up into this section, there's three essential terms that I just want to lay out before us that will help us get a hold of what Paul is teaching. These are the terms, grace, Christ, and the Spirit. These are essential concepts and essential terms for being complete, being whole, and being filled. Grace, let's start there. Grace means God's unmerited favor. It's a gift that's given to us. I love the acronym. I have no idea where it originated. If you take G-R-A-C-E to understand what grace is about, it is God's righteousness at Christ's expense. We receive the grace of God based on what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection. He pays for our unrighteousness and gives us in exchange his righteousness through his victorious death and resurrection, okay? I believe in a literal death on the cross of the fully divine son of God who is fully human. And he raised from the dead and he predicted that he'd do it before he pulled it off, okay? That's a guy worth following. And we start to hear from the apostle what this grace is all about. Christ. Christ is how Colossians refers to Jesus more frequently than referring to him as Jesus. Christ is the title. It's the Jewish hope. But he's writing to Greek, so he's using Greek. And he, Christ is Greek for Messiah. They have been hoping for the deliverer, the rescuer, the Messiah, who is going to be a king like David and rule forever. And Jesus fulfills that role. He is that Christ. And 
Already we read verses one through three. We've already heard him described as Christ three times. In the little tiny letter of Colossians, he's described as Christ 27 times. He's described as Jesus fewer times than described as Christ. But the Lord Jesus Christ is who we're talking about. The third term is the Spirit. He'll, we'll get into all of this in greater detail as we go. But the Spirit, because of what Jesus has done, is God's Spirit filling us and causing us to be made whole and complete. Now, we'll see that in verse 9, so let's jump ahead to verse 9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Okay? So far, uh, some of you are going, whoa, that's a lot of orientation. But I think it'll be helpful as we keep moving forward. Let's jump into the rest of the text. We're going to start with point number one. We are rescued by faith. We are rescued by faith. For those of us who have been taught this over and over again, don't snooze, okay? We know this to be true, but we need to be able to articulate this to all of our friends. What kind of faith is saving faith? We are trained in our culture that faith is valuable. If you're in any athletics, your, your coaches are going to train you. Believe in yourself. Believe you can do this. If you don't believe that you can do this, you won't do this. You, can't, don't, you won't ever train hard enough to get there. That is not saving faith. That's a particular kind of believing. It's a believing in you, believing that you can. Training hard enough so that if you believe in you and believe in your training, you're going to get there. That is not a saving faith. Okay? Saving faith is faith in Jesus Christ and his ability. Our faith is only as strong as the object in which you place your faith. Okay? So we're not talking about faith being like, I believe in the Bible, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe, and then recite the Apostles' Creed as if it's a test. You know? That's not how we get in believing all the right stuff and I passed the test and so I'm going to get to heaven. That would be faith in your ability to believe the right information and I agree with that. Demons will pull off in their brains the correct interpretation of who Jesus is. In fact, they're the first ones to declare Jesus as the Son of God in the Gospels. If you read, it was always a demonic that's identified Jesus as the Son of God first because they know who he is. That doesn't mean they place their faith in him, which is a trusting in him and allowing their lives to be transformed by him as they follow him. No, they identified him and kind of kept their distance, okay? And so saving faith is the object of the faith that you trust in enough to follow. Or if I trust the chair can hold me up, I literally sit in the chair, okay? And it's a faith that can save you. Having defined that much, let's keep reading. Colossians 1, now we're at verse 4. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Now, already you're going to have the hints of there's been a pulling away from the true message of the good news. People saying this is good news, if that's, that's not good news all the way yet until you do this and this and this, and Paul's going to have to correct that because the true message is faith in Jesus and what he has done for us. 
and that's what he wants us to get a hold of. Excuse me. This old grandpa went to a soccer game yesterday again. <laughs> I yelled and yelled. I kept telling myself, oh, stop yelling, stop yelling. You got to preach tomorrow. Stop yelling. I couldn't do it. <laughs> we won. <laughs> I'm sure it's because I yelled. On the screen, I want to put a quote that is going to be something that we will see in Colossians. We haven't quite seen it yet, but we're going to see this. Colossians will lift our eyes to a completely sufficient, totally supreme Jesus who is the central answer to all of life's problems. I don't know if everybody here believes that yet, but that's the direction I want to take you. There's a lot of Christians who think they believe in Jesus, but they really look to all kinds of other things for answers. They've kind of just added Jesus to their life, but really the central core of why they do what they do and why they think what they think is the same kind of problems that the Colossians were dealing with. The philosophies of this world and the teaching of somebody else influence their choices and behaviors and maybe even temptations and their peers and doing what everybody else is doing starts being the channel through which we shape our lives. But we need to see that Jesus will shape our lives if he becomes not just the person who saves us to get us to heaven, but we view him as the source of life, the means to live it out, and the purpose for everything we do, that he then becomes the answer for everything. He's central to the way we think, for who we are, for making us whole and complete. That's where I want us to get to. That's totally different than just, just sort of a tag add-on Jesus, okay? I run into too many people today that are just like these Colossians that are all pulled apart by a watered-down version of Jesus, just trying to add Jesus to their life so that they can have sort of like a fire insurance and make sure they get to heaven, but their life does not look like Jesus at all. And I want us to immerse ourselves in this truth so that we want to be like Jesus and his life and source and strength helps us in becoming like him as we walk with him. So, rescued by faith in Jesus. Point number two, rescued from darkness. We're going to skip now to verse 12. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So we're being rescued from the dominion of darkness. Let me just describe this a little bit. There's all kinds of darkness. I mean, there's, you've experienced the darkness of sorrow, I'm sure, where it's just the depths of grief and sorrow. Maybe it could be from your own life that you've made a mess of things and you're sorry about that. It, maybe it's from the loss of somebody, but you just start feeling kind of lost in a darkness of sorrow. There is also the darkness of fear and anxiety. Things started becoming doom and gloom. We even talk about it that way, doom and gloom, a darkness sort of enveloping that's just like, it's hopeless. 
That fear is a kind of darkness. Ignorance is a form of darkness where the light isn't going on. We don't get it and I don't understand and, and, and maybe we don't even know we're ignorant and that's a form of darkness. Sin is a kind of darkness. The Bible describes sin as when we choose apart from God's will, we think we're choosing something that will be good in the moment for us based on something that's outside of God's will And as we choose it, it's taking us off a path and calling us to want to choose it again and again. And we enjoy it less and less as we want to choose it more and more. And it starts to rip us up from the inside. And we start to destroy ourselves with these choices. And yet we're so stuck in them, we don't even know how to back out because it just keeps kind of taking us. And there's all kinds of addiction that sin will cause. Jesus is the one that said sin enslaves. These choices will start to take over. At first, we do it because we think it'll be fun. We think it'll give us a wholeness. But it takes more and more of us. And that's a kind of a darkness. Deception is a kind of a darkness. But all of that are just symptomatic Uh, Many, many paths of darkness that all fall within a domain of darkness that's headed up by the prince of darkness, a rebel ruler who was the most beautiful, most powerful created being, an angel. Uh, Sometimes we refer to him as Lucifer in his angel state, but then he fell. He was supposed to be a guardian cherub for Adam and Eve, but instead of guarding, he said, what, these skin bags? Serve them? Heck no. (laughs) Right? No, they're going to serve me. And he tempts them. And as soon as they listen to his rebellion, instead of listen to God's truth, they're under his domain of darkness. And all humanity since then have been under the domain of darkness as this world became a rebel world, taken out of the domain of light as all of us raised our fists to God. And we usually think, Adam and Eve, boy, they were so stupid to do that. We all go through the same story. We've all done it. And we all get stuck. We all fall short. And it all rips us up. Okay? So, by the way, I don't know if you believe in the devil. I do. I don't know if you believe in demons. He's not alone. I I think some estimates are a third of the angels. Myriads and myriads fell with the devil. And they're organized. I believe this. You know why I believe this? Because I believe the guy who predicted his own death and could raise from the dead. He believed it. It's his worldview, so I make Jesus' worldview my worldview, and the more I do so, the more my world makes sense, and I start to go, oh, wow, this is real. So I don't know if that's where you are yet, but I hope that I can take you there too. So rescued from darkness, point number three, rescued by redemption. That's a key word in the good news, okay? So we just picked up from, uh, rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of uh, the the son that he loves and now rescued by redemption, we're at verse 14, Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption. So we're talking about the son he loves, Jesus Christ. This is in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So how are we rescued? We're rescued by redemption and the forgiveness of sins And I'm going to give you a quick definition of redemption. It's probably too quick, but it's very helpful. It's on the screen. Redemption is the release from bondage 
through the payment of a price. Think in terms of the Israelites were released from the bondage of slavery by the rescue delivering God, okay? But there was a payment of a price in that story. But it was anticipatory for the payment of a once and for all price that Jesus would pay to redeem us out of a slavery of a different kind, a slavery to our sin. And he's going to redeem us by paying that price. I am running out of time. I want to point you to a video. Seven minutes long. Here we go. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap though. So Explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth 
reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. So as you can see, if we're just kind of tagging on Jesus to our life so that we get that fire insurance to just make it to heaven, we're missing out on the whole thrust of Jesus' teaching on how he lets us in on his kingdom now, makes us complete and whole now, so that the kingdom of heaven brings order to our marriages and a heavenly marriage and a heavenly family now. We need to learn now how to live this out. And so, yes, he'll take us to heaven, but if that's all you're after, you won't be training in the word. We train in the word so that we can experience the fullness of what Jesus has brought to us. So, we've just begun. Would you bow your heads? I said that I would be closing in a prayer that Paul wrote. I've changed the pronoun so it works as a prayer instead of just describing how he prayed for them. It's uh, from Colossians 1, 9 through 14. Our Father God, we continually ask you to fill us with the knowledge of your will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that we may live a life worthy of our Lord Jesus and please you in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, as we grow to know you better and better, that we might be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might 
so that we may have great endurance and patience and give joyful thanks to you, our Father, because you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of your holy people in the kingdom of light. For you, our Father in heaven, have rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, your dear Son, whom you love and in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is in his name that we come to you today and pray. Amen. I hope to see you back next week as we continue on at verse 15 and look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Just immerse yourself every day and we'll keep coming alongside. You might want to look at those talk it over questions on the back side of your outline to help you to just keep going into Colossians. See you next week. God bless.